everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Salt Lake 2002 Retrospective Podcast, a back-of-house look at the planning and delivery of the Salt Lake 2002 Olympic Winter and Paralympic Winter Games, as told by the very people who organized them. I'm Christian Napier, and I am pleased to be joined once again by Ed Einan, who is going to continue his amazing stories about the Salt Lake 2002 Games with us. Ed, thank you again for joining us. Welcome back. Thank you, Christian. Well, in our last episode, we heard a lot of great stuff about the initial foundation of the games, your arrival in the organizing committee, how you started to set up the, the operation and the leadership in that early period. You talked a bit about um, the scandal, the change in leadership. And so I want to spend a little bit of time going over that. When did that start to surface for you? You joined in early 1998. And how did it kind of progress from there? Um, seven months into my time at SLOC, um, the scandal hit, and the scandal broke on November 24th, 1998. Uh, there was a leaked, unsigned letter from 1996 that referenced a, a SLOC scholarship payment that couldn't be continued, uh, and the rest was kind of history. I, I found it interesting that it went to Channel 4, uh, and the anchor there, uh, Kimberly I don't know if she used her name Johnson or it was some other name, but this was Dave Johnson's wife. I thought, ironically, something that uh, involved him, allegedly, uh, it went to that particular TV station. And um, it's KTVX and Chris Van Oker broke that story. But it eventually, you know, it essentially involved um, an IOC member and his daughter. Uh, and the discontinuation of something that actually had occurred prior to our games. Um, so that's that was kind of the, the flashpoint of it. Um, and so, you, you know, we were all kind of shook up pretty good, not knowing what was going to happen. And uh, that was, again, just before Thanksgiving. And by December 11th, there was actually about a two-week period where four separate invest- investigations began. Uh, the IOC had an investigation. The USOC had its own investigation. The Ethics Board of SLOC had its investigation. And the United States Department of Justice, handled by the FBI, was the fourth group. And uh, at the same time, SLOC was uh, being legally represented by Latham Watkins out of California. And Barry Sanders, I recall, was their leader. And I think, uh, to quote Beth White, I had a chance to talk with her after her podcast the other day. And uh, she she referred to it as an IOC scandal. I think that's accurate. There were things that happened well ahead of our games, uh, but the net of it was um, six IOC members were expelled, four more had resigned. Um, and so it could be referenced as an IOC scandal. I do like what Governor Levitt had to say. It didn't start here, but let it stop here. And uh, but as far as the morale, I would say it was mixed. I've heard different characterizations of it. Um, I think it was different for different people, but one of the things that helped us uh, was we knew, many of us knew we had nothing to do with the scandal and we were here to put on some games. So a lot of us put our heads down and just continued to prepare with an ear towards what's going on. But I think uh, the IOC president, Juan Antonio Samaranch, did something that was helpful early on. It was only two to three weeks after the memo was leaked to the press and this started that uh, Samranch came on, President Samranch came on and said there was no possibility that Salt Lake City would be stripped of the games. 
So, you know, in mid-December, we knew that at least the IOC wasn't going to take the games from us, regardless of what the uh, probes were going to be. Of course, there was the back of the mind, would the Department of Justice find something? And, uh, and it wasn't till May of 1999, so it was a window of about six months or so, five months, six months, where there was that uncertainty, would the Justice Department turn up anything? And, and uh, in May of 1999, they said that SLOC would not be charged. And, um, you know, in the end, um, you know, it came and it went and it certainly reformed some things at the IOC and other things. But uh, I think as for the most part, I thought most people, though we were a little nervous, really kept working hard during that time. And I thought the morale was pretty good considering all, all, all the situation. You know, that was uh, all happening in late 1998, early 1999. But one of the saddest moments that I had and most emotional for me personally in the games was um, uh, January of 1999. I got a call from Frank, my boss at the time, and he uh, he said, would you come to my office? And it was kind of late in the day and um, I didn't know what to expect. But, you know, we'd talk quite a bit, so it wasn't scary or anything. I just didn't know what he had on his mind. And he had a very somber look you know, when I came into his office and he said uh, in a very quiet voice, he says, I'm going to go resign. And that just shocked me. I knew we were all in this together. I didn't believe that Frank had anything to do with the scandal. Some might think otherwise. I certainly didn't think. It just didn't seem right that he would, uh, you know, be the one to kind of be the statesman and and take one for the team, so to speak. But that was his plan was to go meet with the governor that night. Uh, and there were apparently after the fact, uh, there were others there from SLOC, the board and the USOC was represented. So he resigned to them on that night of January 7th. But, uh, I, I didn't know what to do. I, I really, Frank was somewhat controversial. The press wasn't always a fan and, you know, he had his detractors, but I really enjoyed Frank. I thought he did some great things and it's so, so stunned me. All I could do was salute him. I literally salute. I'm not from the military. It just was, seemed like the thing to do. And uh, he saluted me back. And it was a very, very touching moment. Um, and when we recovered, he says, you got to do one other thing. You got to go down and uh, get Dave Johnson's resignation. And uh, that was tough. Uh, Dave and I uh, had worked together on a lot of things to clean up some things that hadn't been properly documented about uh, higher letters and people and so forth. And we needed to do a lot of that. But also as those phases I mentioned earlier, uh, there were people that had to come and go. And so one of the ways that uh, Dave was familiar with is I would take someone to lunch and talk them through a, a resignation if, if that were necessary. And, and uh, it became kind of a pattern. We wanted to treat them with dignity and, and do the right thing. Well, Dave observed that. And uh, so when I called Right after a meeting with Frank, for an, uh, uh, he was at home or away from the office anyways, uh, calling for a time to speak. He basically, he said, are we going to lunch? And I said, yes, Dave, we're going to lunch. So that night I called him and uh, his attorney was on the line as well. And Dave was nothing but a class act, a gentleman all the way through that process. Um, as you know, as I mentioned earlier, he was uh, uh, acquitted from any wrongdoing. 
and I just thought he was uh, somebody that uh, I would have continued to enjoy uh, working with, but uh, he was somebody that uh, was a, you know, kind of affected by that whole scandal. Uh, another person on our team that was, uh, uh, you know, that, that key team that was reporting to Frank that was affected was Kelly Flint. Kelly um, uh, was completely exonerated, but had to step out for a month or two uh, while the uh, investigations took place. But uh, Kelly was found with no um, wrongdoing. He was reinstated in his role. But obviously, with a hole like that, you've got to do a CEO search. And, uh, you know, there was a lot of hands involved. Uh, the search committee involved uh, members of the board, the USOC, uh, you know, our two senators from the time at that time, you know, Hatch and Bennett. Um, and there were, as best I can recall, there were about 42 names in total that were considered for the CEO search. Names like John Huntsman Jr. Dave Checkets and Bill Marriott Jr. and Brent Scowcroft and David Garter and even an old buddy of mine, Henry Marsh, who used to run the steeplechase. Uh, they were all in that uh, potential list of CEOs. But in the end, uh, Mitt Romney was selected and he started in February of 11th of 1999. And they say success has a thousand fathers and Mitt's hire was no exception. Uh, of the many hands that helped get Mitt to Slock, I, I want to acknowledge uh, Kim Gardner, who Mitt used to mention was the guy who called him, but also Bob Garf, Governor Levitt, all had a hand in helping get him on, involved. And, um, you know, at that point, uh, we had a new CEO. And, so, Ed, uh, I, just wanna, I just want to make sure I understand. So it was January of 1999 when Frank resigns and Dave resigns. And so it's just over a month period between... Frank's uh, tenure ending and Mitt's beginning. Is that right? That's correct. It was, uh, you know, it was all hand search. And Frank, though he uh, officially announced his and Dave's resignation on February or January 8th, he did offer to fill in until uh, the next CEO was hired. So Frank did hang around a little bit and helped out. Uh, but the, the mission was to get this new CEO. And yeah, so he came in and, uh, Mitt hit the ground running. You know, a group of us got to go over to the governor's mansion and we spent time with this new CEO uh, because technically Slock didn't hire him. That was hired by, you know, the governor um, and the board. So he was already on. So we got to meet Mitt for the first time. And I, I know I was prepared with five key decisions that uh, Mitt had to make immediately. Uh, I can't talk about three of them because they involved uh, sensitive employee matters. But the two that he did agree to was that on Fridays, Frank had been a very uh, more of a formal leader. So we were very business dressed oriented. Mitt agreed to go ahead and have a, uh, a casual Friday where we could wear jeans. That was well received by Slock. And then also we had uh, another decision about some watches. Uh, Seiko had some watches made, 200. And Mitt was getting close to number 200 employee. So either we were gonna let those sit and never give them out or to go ahead and give them out. Mitt said, give them out. So the first 200 people uh, have a, a special watch that was uh, given a long time ago. Those are two of the quick decisions. But what was really on Mitt's mind was he wanted to set a new culture. He knew that we'd just come through scandal. He wanted to really 
immediately get going on guiding principles or a mission for the organization. And he told me, he says, I want you to go out and I want you to interview a whole lot of the folks within the organization. And I want you to come back with some recommendations as to what our guiding principles should be. But he says, before you go, there is one thing that you absolutely have to include. And I thought, well, you know, here's a guy that's bought 120 companies or sold 80 of them or whatever the number was in his 16 years. Uh, and in the end, what would he say? Would he say integrity? Would he say uh, ethics? You know, what would he say? And his one trait kind of surprised me. He says, fun. He says, if we're going to work our hardest and do our best at SLOC, we got to have fun. And so that was definitely going to be one of those guiding principles. So long story short, we met with everybody and came up with five. Fun and celebration, integrity, teamwork, communications, and passion and pride. And in an effort to try to get uh, us to remember those things, we came up with fit cap. We actually had baseball caps that said fit cap on them to remember those five traits. And under each of those traits, rather than have platitudes or meaningless um, bullet points, we put in things that we thought really resonated with people, that they were actionable, they made sense. Um, you know, and I just thought it was a, a good way to kind of put forward what Mitt wanted. And we, as a reminder, we, in fact, I think in my office here, actually keep a copy of my slide principles. I've been looking for that thing. <laughs> that sits in an acrylic uh, holder that sat on everybody's desk. And Mitt uh, spoke a lot about th those principles in his book, Turnaround. And uh, of course, he was the turnaround expert. We were 400 million down and we ended up with 100 million surplus. And, and I give credit to Frank because even before the scandal, Frank knew we were in trouble, that a lot of the uh, advertisers and, and sponsors had uh, already signed up and there wasn't a lot more opportunity. And he even said to us uh, on one of our meetings that we would probably have to go out and seek uh, sponsorships. I thought, wow, that's tough. We haven't signed up for that, but he knew there were problems. But uh, Mitt, when he came in, he took the budget that was there, brought in a guy by the name of Bob White, did some other things, later Fraser as well. But in the end, um, we found out that there was this heavy surplus and something had to be done. And through the genius of Mitt, I give him tons of credit and his creativity. We found ways to, along the help with marketing, Mark Lewis, Don Sterling, a whole lot of people, Fraser, you know, there are people that really made a difference, but we were able to turn that around. So his book, 2004, for those who haven't read it, uh, chronicles our Olympics and, and our SLOC experience. So I highly recommend we do that. Why don't you talk a little bit about that turnaround from a human resources or workforce perspective, since everybody was hit adversely by the budget, everybody's impacted. So, you know, when it came to your areas, human resources, and then later on you had, as you said, international relations and so on and so forth. What were some of the creative ways that you found to overcome some of the financial challenges facing the organizing committee with respect to the workforce? Well, Mitt uh, set the bar. You know, he, he basically said, let's focus on sport. Let's focus on preparing the way for the athletes. Let's bring down our expectations of spectacular 
ceremonies or other kinds of expensive, uh, you know, accoutrements to the uh, to the game. And I think that uh, that set the tone for everybody. Uh, there were certainly hiring freezes. Steve Clark very much involved. We had others: Alan Shaw, Bob Keniston, uh, Richard Besmer, some of these uh, other consultants, and so on, that would help us kind of reduce the number. Bob White was part of that. But I think it was just rescoping everything. I, I think Mitt also said something interesting that we thought, oh, that's going to be interesting, which was, uh, you know, we're going to lower expectations in all areas. Uh, maybe for the, the volunteers, we give them a tie-dyed T-shirt and we have local groups make up sack lunches for their meals. <laughs> and I thought, okay, that's, uh, that's a different look. <laughs> but ultimately, uh, by by doing that in all areas, um, little by little, we could add things back. That was all part of the, the grand design was when we could afford it. But a lot of that was driven by the creative approaches to getting greater revenue in, in ways that hadn't been done before, whether it was local groups or uh, individual contributors and so forth. And, and uh, I thought that was done. So the revenues had to grow, but also our expenses had to be reduced. I thought it was done in a in a really brilliant way because it also lowered the expectations of everybody so that when the games finally launched, it, it shocked in a positive way just how wonderful they really were. And uh, I think that was the genius of, of MIT, frankly. Well, certainly managing expectations is an important part of anything. And uh, I think by most measures, yes, the games of Salt Lake exceeded expectations. You, I know you did a lot of preparation and a lot of thought behind this, uh, but there's a little note in the email exchange that we had about Mitt's self-deprecation. Tell me about that. Well, you know, I, I uh, had the pleasure of, you know, working with Mitt for three years, but I was also uniquely qualified to get to view him behind the scenes. You may recall, Christian, that uh, we had facing offices on the 13th floor. In fact, Fraser used to give me a hard time for having such a palatial office. What it really was was a conference room that he and I were in, and there was a glass partition that separated. So he and I stared at each other. I actually had uh, curtains installed because there were times I just didn't think Mitt wanted to be looking out and staring at me. So, uh, But, no, I got to see him a lot behind the scenes and with him, and I was just always impressed of how um, self-flagellating, self-deprecating, whatever you want to call it, how he was, his style. Uh, one of the first questions he asked was, where could he get a cheap haircut? <laughs> you know, and here's a guy that's uh, very wealthy coming into the games. And, you know, there were times where uh, he made it clear that he was not going to follow the normal pomp and circumstance. In fact, he instituted some changes that I think the IOC still follows today. You know, we used to always have... Uh, uh, you know, in-person meetings. And I think he was one of the first to institute the idea of having video conferences. But, you know, uh, I think if you think about him and his self-deprecation, one of the early press conferences he had, uh, I was I was really blown away and, and pleased with how he approached it. It was basically the, the 30 things I, uh, sorry, the 10 things I did wrong in the first 30 days. Now, who does that? You know, but what it really did was it endeared the media to us as a group and to him as an individual. And I think that was genius. Uh, you know, we had just come out of scandal and Frank had a little more prickly relationship with the press. And Mitt was 
he was genius. It was just the right thing to do. So he was always that way. He, you know, there's lots of other stories I could tell you, but bottom line is he was a real person. Oftentimes in this, uh, in this environment, when people talk about Mitt, they also talk about Frazier because they had a history. How did Frazier come on board? Yeah, you know, uh, when Mitt uh, came on, he was really digging in and doing some things that needed to be done. And, you know, at the time we had some oper- operations representation, but with Dave going, that left a hole. And, uh, you know, so we started officially a couple months uh, a month or two later after Mitt, we started a COO search. And uh, Mitt and I met on, and he had a lot of uh, people that he had worked with before that, uh, of course, had no games experience, but they were really good business folks. And uh, we put them on the list. He also challenged us to have everybody that had ever worked as a COO who was still alive. So whether it was Petter Ronigan and Lilyhammer, or we had people from Atlanta or LA, we interviewed them all. And as this list continued to get shorter and shorter, uh, we were getting a little more nervous about not being able to find that right person. And um, so and I were very close on, on that search, but one day he came in on one of our Monday meetings and was very apologetic. And he said, I'm so sorry, I didn't get a chance to talk to you, but I hired someone over the weekend that I know. <laughs> and uh, Fraser was not on the list. And my understanding was he had called Fraser to get some, because he'd known Fraser, but he had called to get some um, references, not thinking that Fraser would be available or would want to come to the games. And somehow in that conversation, they both decided he would come aboard. So Mitt came in on that Monday morning meeting with his reports and says, I've hired somebody, and Ed, I apologize that I didn't tell you about it, but uh, we got this person, and it was Fraser. So obviously a great hire, and uh, Fraser took on the COO role and um, had the CFO role for a while until Brett Hopkins took that, but uh, obviously did some wonderful things. Um, But yeah, I give a lot of credit to Mitt, even before Fraser's hire, of putting some foundational things in that we all benefited from. And I also give a lot of credit to Fraser for the great things he did once he arrived as well. So both of them deserve a lot of credit. I'd like to circle back, if I may, to something that you talked about a bit in the previous episode of our podcast, and that was assuming additional responsibilities. How did that come about? And what was the impact, in your view, of having all of those areas consolidated under your direction? Well, um, you know, part of it was necessity. The, there were functions that were floating after Dave Johnson's resignation and a combination of Frank wanting to do something about that and, and Mitt. Um, I just, it, it wasn't a natural fit, but I, I'd like to think they felt I was okay as a leader and that probably could handle something like that. And But I knew in my heart, though I had no experience with NOCs and, and uh, the IOC and so on, um, that I had two pros. It was really down to Ina and Verena just were so good at it. All they needed was somebody to be there to help on any issues that came up that I could help on or mainly stay out of their way. But uh, no, they fit in real well to the team and that was the first two ads. The other ads came with Shelley's uh, resignation, where again, functions are now floating. 
what do we do with them? And so that's when I picked up uh, Judy Stanfield and uh, what a pro she it was to do all those things with the uh, education, the youth groups and so forth. Um, but also um, I picked up uh, office services, a very difficult, but Andrew Fraley did a nice job with that. Um, so, you know, I think it's just the, the recognition of maybe we don't have to all be pigeonholed or in silos that, you know, that uh, people can learn how to do things. But I think a lot of it was just having pros in those positions where, you know, kind of stay out of the way or help them where I can, but they were great to work with. So um, hopefully that answers what you're thinking. It absolutely does. Uh, among those many responsibilities, we touched on it just a moment ago, was the volunteer initiative. And in speaking with many of the guests here on our podcast, everyone sings the praises of the volunteers. Many say this was the best volunteer workforce they were ever involved with. Um, the, the volunteers were outstanding. I'm wondering if you can spend a few minutes talking about this volunteer program. How did you formulate it initially? What was the thinking that went in behind it? And then how did you turn that vision into a reality? Thanks. Uh, well, a lot of it was just observing what other groups did, both good and bad, what other OCOGs did. We, we studied closely, for example, Sydney and uh, Atlanta and found that one of the shortcomings was they were still hiring at games time. You know, that's kind of a tough th way to go. You've started your games, you still need people. So we were committed not only to have the best worst workforce games ever, but we were going to try to do it differently so that we could have enough people, quality people, well ahead of the games. And so rather than do the big kickoffs like Sydney did, where they spent much of their recruiting budget on that kickoff, expecting to get everybody they needed a couple of years out, we learned from that. And we said, well, let's do something we later called Pulse Recruiting. Let's have the big kickoff, but let's only spend a small portion of the budget. And then let's have events throughout the year. So when we when we thought about uh, how do you get the kickoff, of course, we had Steve Young, uh, who's a real local hero. He was our volunteer chairperson. Mid, of course, we had uh, others from the board. I think we had the mayor, Rocky, was there. And it was just this big glittery night that, that kicked it off and you know that was jenny and that was steve and that was darren and anyway um we wanted this big push but we didn't want to spend the part the bigger portion of our budget so we decided we would every couple of weeks do something that created a little more news would kind of generate some interest by those who we were targeting so that we could have this regular pulse that it would just kind of like a pulse, we'd get a little bunch here and then two weeks later, get a little more and a little more. And it worked very effectively and so much so that we uh, cut off our Team 2002. That's what we called the group, the Team 2002. We had 67,000 candidates with a year to go for 23,000 jobs to cover our pre-games needs, our Olympic games, our Paralympic games. So we stopped our public recruiting um, and we, I think the hardest part of that whole thing was telling 44,000 good candidates that we didn't have room for them. That was really sad. And I think we got a couple of kind of negative um, press items around that time. And, and that was the hardest part. But yeah, we thought, okay, you've got this big group. We were able to choose one out of three. Uh, so we went back to our traits that we hired. And I, 
I uh, was looking at uh, uh, an interview sheet the other day that they literally took those six traits and put it into the interview. We also went to our volunteer uh, group, our database, and we pulled out HR folks with other companies. We took out recruiters, and we in turn had those people interview their colleagues to 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 be. So we 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 augmented Steve's group with all these volunteer recruiters and interviewers to build the team. And of course, you had a lot of seasoned folks in the ranks um, that knew others from other games and so forth. So there was a lot of that as well. But for Team 2002, most of them were recruited through this through this effort. And we thought, okay, you've got this great group of people. How do you properly train them? And so a lot of credit to, um, uh, to Carol, but we wanted to keep it simple. You know, Petter Ronigan, one of the things he taught us was people can remember three to four things, maybe five things. If you hit them with more than that, they're not going to remember that. So that's where charge came from. I was always a big fan of the Dodger games and you'd hear that organ play and everybody yell charge with somebody came up with the kazoo uh, piece and that was just all part of it. But how do you, you know, you want to teach principles. You want to teach simplicity so that people can in turn figure out what to do. Because if you try to prepare them for every little thing that could happen, you could have a 10,000 page handbook that could never cover everything. So it was really needed to be principle-based. And uh, I think that was key once we had the workforce. I remember one thing, just going back to Mitt's um, kind of who he is, uh, we had come up with the idea that maybe organizations in Utah could consider giving up 10% of the workforce and that a combination of that person providing his or her own vacation time plus the company providing more time that we would cover the 17 days of the games, which 11 were work days. And I was explaining this to Mitt as we were driving over to Bonneville Corporation. Uh, that's the LDS Church's uh, for-profit arm and the companies that are associated with that, like uh, um, you know the Beneficial Life and some of the, the different groups. But anyway, there were CEOs waiting for us. And I'm literally explaining uh, on the drive over to MIT that we were thinking about this 10%. Maybe people could, and just like that, he says, 1066. And I said, what does that mean? He says, we're going to ask these people, we're going to talk to in a few minutes, we're going to ask for 10%, that each person gives six days of their own vacation time and that the company gives six more, 12 days to cover the 11 business days. And that's what we're going to do. And I was just amazed. I watched him get up in front of these 12 CEOs, pitching them for help on the 1066 program. You would have thought he had put that together six months ago and had properly rehearsed it, but he had literally put that together on the ride over in the car. So were a significant percentage of the volunteers then sourced from corporations, organizations, or were the vast majority of them just individuals saying, hey, I want to participate and be a volunteer? Good question. I, knew, I do know that 70% of our workforce was from uh, Utah. Um, and that, that was our SLOC workforce. The Team 2002, most of those were going to be local. Uh, we didn't care about religion. We didn't care about a lot of things. But I would say probably most of those were people that were working. Um, you know, when, when groups would come to us and say, hey, we want to put our group together uh, to go do the Delta Center, I would say, no, it's one at a time. 
That's one person at a time. We don't sign up groups. We don't sign up organizations. We don't promise. Because one of the things we had to do is figure out the 44,000 people we wouldn't hire and the 23,000 people we would for the Team 2002. And we had to kind of say, well, who was available for 17 days? Who's willing to work anywhere we put them? And so that became more the deciding factor. Um, but we, we had such a quality group to pull from. Uh, I don't think we could have missed. If you were ever to put a, a volunteer group together, this was the place. And uh, I, I think it bore out. I want to come back to the training just a little bit. As you mentioned, you tried to keep it simple so that people could learn the most important, the most critical things that they needed to learn. But that training also needed to be motivational because you didn't want to lose people in this volunteer pipeline and have too much attrition. I personally felt the training was very, very entertaining and motivational. What was the thought process behind making this training both educational, but also very motivational? Well, a good, you know, again, a lot of shout outs to Carol and to Jenny. Uh, we did hold three huge initial training sessions, I recall. One was at uh, Weber State, one was at Cottonwood High School, one was at uh, UVU. And, um, you know, Jenny helped put the program together. Carol obviously put the training together. There were thousands in attendance at each one of these. And, of course, Mitt, you can't beat Mitt. He gets up there and he's got a little card on the, the floor. It's just a little note card with a couple of points. And you'd think he was reading from a script and, and doing so well. So he was inspirational. We had videos. Uh, but this was the first training session. This was the kickoff, but it was also the first service training. And uh, we had celebrities there. We had athletes that came out. We also talked about what was ahead. You know, we talked about um, you know, the, the whole charge and the warmth for conflict resolution. And, um, you know, it was inspirational and uh, it was a lot of rah-rah. One of the things we did that was kind of fun is we got the Davis High Drum Corps, uh, the drum line, and they would come in and just so loud and so inspirational. They would open the meeting, coming up the aisles, playing their drums, and they would close and so forth. But yeah, I think that was highly inspirational. That was the service training that, those big events. And then we went into smaller groups and we did, uh, I believe it was, we called it job specific and a venue specific training. So it wasn't but three or four different sessions. You had a playbook, you had a guidebook, you had to get through your training in order to qualify to be that uh, volunteer we were looking for. But one of the things that that, going back to the, uh, the big events, was Mitt, just watching him again. You know, he's a celebrity. He was he was the guy in charge and he could have left early. You know, he, we could have found a way to scoot him out the side and get him out of there because these volunteers weren't coming as families. They were coming as individuals. So there could be thousands of cars out trying to all leave at once. So Mitt, rather than, you know, go early or sit in the green room and cool his heels, he went out and directed traffic. And, you know, here's the CEO of the games directing traffic so to unsnarl, you know, the thousands of cars that had to come out. I remember one time at Cottonwood, uh, a reporter came up and said, hey, we want to interview Mitt Romney. Where is he? I said, my guess is he's out directing traffic. Sure enough, on the news that night, there was Mitt directing traffic. And he was just, 
so self-deprecating that way and, and helpful in any way he could be. Well, let's stick with this. Uh, let's stick with this volunteer theme. So the volunteers get trained and then they actually get scheduled to work shifts and then they show up on venue and they actually start working. So what were some of the things that the workforce team did to make sure that the volunteers were a productive, B felt fulfilled and C kept on showing up for their shifts and doing the work? Well, a lot of it is, uh, you know, comes from within, you know, having picked, uh, having had the, the luxury of picking one out of three and, and doing it with natural behaviors in mind that really comes from the person's core. Uh, a lot of that, they were just excited. We, we called it the once in a lifetime. We, one of my favorite ads when we were doing the team 2002 uh, recruitment, and Steve had a huge hand in that, but you know, was that ad that said uh, something to the effect, it was just like four lines and it said, um, hard work, long hours, no pay, better hurry. <laughs> so people from the beginning were, you know, this is gonna be really hard work, but it's gonna be a once in a lifetime experience. So I think it was started with the person, but we also had great leaders at the venues. We had uh, at all levels and we had people that just were excited to be there. We learned that you don't want to overstack because the capability of a some of someone after a day or two expands. And what the worst thing you could do for a team 2002 volunteer person was to not have them do anything. They all wanted to work hard. They all wanted to make a difference. And I just think it was the combination of the right person with the right leadership on those venues uh, and the excitement of what they were doing. Even if they were out in a parking lot, or they were picking up trash or any more of the behind the scenes jobs, they were pleased to do it, happy to do it. We had less than 1% turnover. I don't know who can go through something like this and claim that, but it was just, it was just uh, all those dynamics, I think, uh, and probably more were, were in play. Wow. Well, the time just continues to fly by and I feel like I have so many more questions to answer you have time to do another episode with us, Ed? If you'd like. Oh, I'd love it. I'd love it. So let's leave this one here, but I want to come back to music one more time because I remember on the Facebook post, you had identified a lot of musical numbers or acts or songs. We already talked about the Coming to America, Neil Diamond. Any other songs, artists? I'd have to go with, I think it was Gloria Stefan that did Reach and uh, the video associated with that. So in my mind, the games had both a song that was snappy and a corresponding set of video pictures. And uh, you may remember that one that had more to do with the torch. And uh, yeah, I thought that was a great song. Should make the list. All right. Gloria Stefan. Fantastic. It's on the Spotify playlist. We're going to put it there. Ed, thank you so much. We'll follow up uh, this episode with another one shortly. Listeners, thank you for participating and listening. Please like and subscribe to our podcast and we'll join you again soon. Ed, thanks. Thank you, Christian.